So glad to see you all here today. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for braving the uh, challenging elements today. But, you know, it's, it's Wisconsin. You just got to put more clothes on, right? That's right. Amen. Preach it. So uh, it's, it is the season of giving, so we're going to give away a couple books today. You guys came to the right service. I didn't do this in the first service, so consider yourselves lucky. Um, this is a book that we're taking all of our small group, our city group leaders through called Discipling. It's by Mark Dever. It's basically just like how to help people grow in their faith. And it's really simple. And so it's a short read. So anybody want this one? Let me see it. All right. Whoop. Hey. Oh! Almost here. All right, Autumn, I need a runner. It's my girl. Let's go give it to Stephen back there in the hat, okay? Thanks, Autumn. All right. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, um, why don't you... Open it up to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll get started there today. And we're going to be looking at uh, the, the narrative of the wise men and Herod. And I find that um, man, a lot of the narratives of Jesus' birth are very peculiar, if you think about it. And today we're going we're gonna to go over this text that I don't think we've ever preached through in our six and a half years at the Vine and it's the narrative of Herod and the wise men. And it's important for us to ask ourselves, like, what's significant about what took place here? Why, we should, why should we care? What, what's it all about? Why did Matthew write this down for an original audience 2,000 years ago that has lasted up until our lifetime? And, and one of the things I love about Christmas narratives in the Bible surrounding Jesus' birth is just the whole idea that he— that our cultural assumptions get rattled a little bit. We, we get to um, be challenged a little bit. Um, we get to be awakened to maybe the values that we have that stand in distinction from God's values. I'll just give you one example, and we'll, we'll maybe see that this morning as well. But one example is just the fact that, that God, through his angels, shows up and makes this massive announcement to the shepherds. And that's kind of a, a famous Christmas story. Glory to God in the highest, and these heavenly hosts and these shepherds are standing out in the fields going like, what in the world is this? And the reason why that's peculiar is because if we're just embracing the values of the world, if a king is coming, he wants to come and he wants to show up to the important people, not the marginalized people. But that's not what God does. See, shepherds back in ancient times when the Bible was written, shepherds were marginalized. They were just like farmhands. They were poor. They hung outside with smelly animals. And they weren't like the upper crust of society. But God loves to turn our values on their head oftentimes. And he has a heart for the marginalized. And so that's just one example. But we're going to look at another one here this morning in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. All right, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, would you help us? Uh, we love your word. We love that you have um, given us your word, that we can focus on your coming uh, the first time this morning. And so would you help us understand it? Would you awaken us to where we need to um, rejoice, where we need to repent, where we need to relinquish control, where we need to um, just stand in awe, Lord? Um, wh wherever we're at in this room, Lord, help us by your spirit to have your word, as you promised to do, suss things out and flesh things out and, 
and may there be no hiding this morning uh, in, in, as, we, as we read your word, but may we fully want to step into the light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that's important, remember that, he's born in Bethlehem. Okay, we're going to see that in a little bit. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, let's just look closely at these verses here, okay? Now, if you look, we've got two main characters, right? What do we got? We've got Herod and we've got the wise men, right? See that there? Verse 1 and verse 2. Now, just to set the stage, I want to just describe our characters, okay? Just to let you get to know them a little bit. Um, there's some things we know about Herod, who's called the king here, um, from just uh, antiquity and history books. Um, Herod is called the king here. Now, what that means is only he was a puppet king. He wasn't like a real king. He didn't have ultimate authority. The ultimate authority at this time in history was the Romans. And they ruled from Spain to India, this massive swath of land, and they just dominated wherever they went, and they conquered. But since it was so huge, they had to have regional leaders, regional rulers. And that's what Herod was. It was kind of like Rome, uh, and the Roman emperor was the president in, in our kind of lingo, in our political system. And Herod, even though he's called the king, he was more of a puppet king, he was more like a governor. And he was given charge by the Romans over this geographic area where Jewish people lived. Okay? And so he was just more of a governor, even though it's called uh, the king here. And Herod was known for being very paranoid, um, very insecure. At the slightest hint of a lack of loyalty, he would have people put to death, even people of his own family, even his own wives. Um, he, was, he was a bit of a nut in that way. But he was also known um, as being a good organizer, being a decent administrator, and, 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 and having things built and infrastructures put in place during the time of his reign. So that's kind of Herod. And then we also have the wise men. The wise men. Now there's not as much written about them. And a lot of the wise men, uh, the narrative of the wise men is, is shrouded in mystery. Um, so what we do know is most likely they were either Persian or Babylonian. Kind of a mixture of astronomers and astrologers. So we've got a science. They were kind of like ancient star scientists mixed with astronomy. I think I'm getting this right. The astral, astronomy is like the science. Astrology is like the voodoo, right? Okay, so, so like just like looking into and reading things and how that corresponds to, to like um, patterns and human behavior and all that kind of stuff. They were kind of both, okay? And, and we don't really know much more about them like that uh, other than that. Um, here's one that will kind of blow up some of your favorite Christmas carols. They weren't kings, Okay, so, and there weren't necessarily three of them. See what it says there? Uh, the wise men. It doesn't say any number. It just says plural. So like we three kings of Orient are sorry. Like that's not necessarily biblical. All right? So I don't mean to ruin your favorite Christmas carol. But that's just what we got here. So we've got a paranoid puppet king. Right? We've got a paranoid puppet king who rules over Jewish people. And we've got non-Jewish 
probably Persian or Babylonian. That's very important. These guys were not Jewish. These, these guys did not have God's word. Um, and these non-Jewish ancient star scientists, all right? Now, that kind of sets the stage for our characters. But I, I want you to notice one other thing. I want you to see this, the tension in these first two verses. Do you see it? Just look at those verses. See if you can find, where, where would there be, where would there be uh, some tension? Anybody got any ideas? Just throw it out there. We're all family here. Any ideas? Yeah? Born king of the Jews. So we've got this statement of king, right? And we've got two different kings. Now, usually, you know, there's, there, there's only going to be one king over an area. And if there's two claims to the throne, that could create some tension, right? And that's what we have. We've got verse 1, Herod is the king. And then you've got these guys showing up, asking around, doing some local research. Where's the king of the Jews? Not Herod. So that's going to create some tension right off the bat. And that, that carries on to this day. Jesus' claim to being the king with a capital K, that creates tension oftentimes in our hearts. And that's what's happening here. We're going to see that unfold with greater detail. We'll come back to that in a second. So at this point in the story, also it's worth mentioning that we can also get caught up on some... Um, not exactly like the centerpiece of the plot type details. And a lot of people have like had a lot of conjecture and theories about a couple things. A, what's the deal with this star? Like, how does this work? And then secondly, how did these guys that weren't Jewish, they didn't have the Old Testament, um, how did they read the stars and figure out to land here? And it's king of the Jews. And how did this piece together for them? Big questions. A lot of mystery. And here's the quick answer. We just simply don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that information. Um, there's been lots and lots of theories, like it was a comet or some other phenomenon. And all those have holes in them. Um, we can't know for sure. And so here's the, th- the takeaway. We probably don't need to focus on that which the Bible doesn't give much detail on. But what we should focus on is that which the Bible does give detail on. Okay? So all we know for sure is that God somehow mysteriously revealed his Savior to these non-Jewish men. And we don't have all the details, but we do have details about something. So let's focus on what we do have details on that Matthew was sure to put in there. He didn't explain the star. He, maybe he didn't even know what was going on. He's just putting in words what, what he knew best how to describe it. Um, but that's not the point. The point is what we do have. What are the details we do have? And look at the end of verse 2. We have details about these men and their intent. We have details about these men and their intent. What was their intent? For we saw his star when it rose, verse 2, and have come to worship him. Have come to worship him. So what's the application for the first, per, the first people reading this and, and us 2,000 years later? I think it kind of jumps off the page that already in child form, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped, right? And not just from Jewish people, not just from his kinsmen, not just from his own people within these borders of Judea. Jesus will be worshipped from all types of people, from all types of places, from all over this planet 
that he made. He is not just God of one nation, one people group, one culture. He's a God of them all, right? Already, even here as a child, Jesus is drawing the nations to himself. God is orchestrating, even in mysterious ways, that he desires to be worshipped from every square inch of his creation. And so this has implications for our church, does it not? If this is God's heart, mysteriously seen here in probably ways that we never expect in in Christmas narratives, even here we're seeing that we can never be an ethnocentric people. Like God's glory is too huge and too awesome and too worthy to be shared for us to just keep it to ourselves. It's so ties to who we are as a missional people. We'll never just be a Christian cul-de-sac. We'll never just be a, a, like, a, like our little God and our little cubicle and don't let anybody in on it. It'll never just be the vine. It'll never just be Madison. It'll never be just Wisconsin. It'll never be just the United States. It has to go global because God's glory demands that he be worshipped by all that he has made. And if it were any less, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. So he's too glorious to be confined He has to go global. And his rule and his reign transcends borders and encompasses the entire universe. It's almost like we're getting, and this is a complicated theological phrase, but I'll I'll give it to you, an, uh, an eschatological foretaste. And what that means is, eschatology means the end times. So what do we find at the end times? We find every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation worshiping the Lamb who was slain for our sins. That's the book of Revelation. But the foretaste is found even here in Matthew chapter 2, that God is drawing the nations to worship the king, drawing the nations to worship the king. So that's beautiful. It's beautiful. So let's keep reading. We've got two characters. We've got the wise men. We've got Herod. We've got some tension, a clash of kingdoms here, right? And we've got a call to worship. So what happens next? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, heard what? Well, that these, these foreigners are walking around town asking him where the king of the Jews is. Herod thought he was king, so maybe there's a threat. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So why is he afraid? Well, like we've already said, this poses a threat. He's, he thought he was king, capital K, right? But maybe he's not. And he's paranoid, he's insecure, he's willing to have people killed to maintain his power, right? And also, a rival king oftentimes brings chaos. Why? Because conflict can can lead to actual physical confrontation, and that's going to spell conflict in a city. And the Romans put him in power. The Romans don't like chaos. The Romans like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And they don't don't, uh, handle rulers very well that don't rule their area with, with, with a healthy jurisdiction, And so Herod knows that if there's a threat here and there's conflict and chaos here, you know, his head could be on the line by those that are over him. And so all of this just poses a threat. So he's really nervous, and he's got to get to the bottom of this. So that's what he does. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be Born. So what's he doing here? We got scribes, chief priests. In this context, what that means is Herod is gathering all the Bible guys. He's at, at, gathering all the guys that have been to seminary. Okay? And the Bible, that all they had at this time was the Old Testament. 
Okay, so Jewish people traditionally should be all about the Old Testament. And so he assembles these guys that are the experts. And he's like, all right, I've heard about this Christ who's to be, to be born. Like, what does the Old Testament say? What's the prophecy? And so Herod assembles the Bible guys, and here's what they tell him. Verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why? Well, here's why. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they just simply break down for him what the Old Testament has predicted about the Messiah, the Savior, the coming King, and that he's to be born in Bethlehem. All right? That's the prophecy. All right, so what does Herod do? Look, let's look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, if we read the rest of the story, now down through verse 13 and beyond, which we're not going to do today, we know that Herod, you know, like I already said, maniacal, insecure, he had no desire to do verse 8. That's just a straight-up lie. He has no desire to worship King Jesus. Because we know Herod, and any threats to his kingship will be um, not tolerated and will be suppressed and put down. And that's what he attempts to do in the following verses. But, but here's what I want us to, to notice. I think this is fascinating from the text. That's a very interesting application for us. Isn't it interesting that as we look at this, he hears the Old Testament prophecy. He hears the Bible predicting that the Messiah is going to come to Bethlehem. And he doesn't sit here and go, the Bible, what's the Bible? The Bible's dumb. Why should I trust that? That's not what he does. He's listening. He's all ears about the Bible. So much so that he tells these guys that when you find the promised Messiah in Bethlehem, not if you find him, but when you find him, let me know so he can have this diabolical plan come to pass. Right? He lies there. But isn't it fascinating that even Herod trusted God's word so much so that he would act upon it, right? He received the facts of the Bible, and he actually knew they were true, such that he was willing to act on those facts, but yet he still hated it. Isn't that wild? This is just another biblical example of, of, of the, the idea that brute facts about God, about faith, doesn't lead anyone to Christ in worship, in affection, in adoration. Like, he had this settled confidence that the Old Testament prophecies were factually true, yet he hated that knowledge. Like, the miracle of prophecy being fulfilled did not stir his heart to worship. Isn't that wild? Like, he knew it was true, but he still hated it. He knew it was true. He didn't repent. He just saw it as a threat and wanted to kill it, right? So you can have a settled confidence that the Bible is accurate and still hate it. You, you, see, the issue in the Christian faith 
And, and worship is not what do you believe in terms of intellectual assent. We've talked about this before. We need to be reminded of it again. The issue is not can you pass a theology test. The issue is not can you get all the right answers. The issue is not can I just nod my head yes, yes, I believe in God. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, 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 yes. Like, Lots of people do that, but still has zero effect on their life in terms of their affections, in terms of their desires, right? So you can know all the right answers and believe that the Bible says, believe what the Bible says is true, just like Herod, and still hate it and not want it. So hold that thought for a second. Let's keep reading, and we're going to see a contrast, okay? This is a a stark contrast. Verse 9. After listening to the king... They went on their way. So remember, Herod has heard the prophecy. He's like, all right, you guys go check it out. And when you find him, you let me know. So after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So you feel this contrast between Herod and the wise men? Right? I consider Herod, exposed to Bible, rules of people that have the Bible, believes it's true, yet hates the truth and wants to kill the truth. And then you've got these wise men not exposed to the Bible. They don't live in the land where the Bible kind of reigns, the Old Testament. And they're these ancient star scientists. They're not Jewish, but somehow are given clues about the Messiah in the stars mysteriously. They don't have the Bible like Herod did, and yet despite their lack of knowledge, their emotions, see the emotions here in the text? Vastly different than, than Herod. Even here, again, God is drawing the nations mysteriously to himself. And notice what a different response. Such a contrast with Herod. Look at the language of emotion here in verse 10. When they saw the star, what does it say? And they were just like, oh, that's a cool star. Or they saw the star and they like wrote a research paper on it. Or they saw the star and they were freaked out and they, and they left. No, when they saw the star, they what? They rejoiced exceedingly. Now, the, the original language here, it's kind of like they flipped out with joy. They, they freaked out. They were just like this, like this doing cartwheels with joy. Okay, exceedingly joyful, right? And then also what happens? And they go into the house and saw the child. And what do they do? Verse 11. They fell down and worship. Their joy and their adoration and their awe of King Jesus actually translated to a physical response. It wasn't just like, well, okay, cool, Jesus is here, and uh, yeah, he's king, and so we'll just, we'll just hang over here. No, no, no. Like, how many of you have like a, a, a classic nativity scene in your home? Anybody? Raise them up high. All right, so when you go home today, here's what you got to do. Those wise men standing there, you tip them over, you put them face down. That's biblical. Right? They weren't standing all stoic, just like, okay, cool. No, it, it, it demanded a response because this news was so great and their worship was so deep. They couldn't be stoic. They, they had to emote. So you all go home, put those, put those wise men face down. That's what King Jesus calls of his people, right? 
face down. See, they don't want to kill the truth. They want to worship the one who is the truth. And they don't have all the knowledge. They didn't have access to knowledge like Herod had. But they had sufficient knowledge for worshiping, treasuring, trusting faith that even here, this child is worthy to be worshiped. And we don't know exactly how they knew what they knew, but they did have faith to travel a long ways, probably a thousand miles. That's a long ways in, in, in antiquity when you don't have interstates. And they, they, they were willing and had faith and trust and treasure in this, in this message from God to do local research. And, and they didn't probably even know it, but their life was probably on the line from crazy Herod. And they brought expensive gifts that they could have been selfish and just kept, but they sacrificed them. And they prostrate themselves before even this child king, and they worship him. It's so beautiful. So you guys feel that contrast? I think Matthew's doing that intentionally. So what's the big point? A couple ones. Number one, we've already said it, but let's just let's re- review it again. Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience in his, in his historical account of Jesus' life. And we know that because he quotes the Old Testament all the time. So he's showing these people who revere the Old Testament that Jesus is the guy. So he's writing to primarily Jewish people, and historically Jewish people, because they were chosen by God, could have a big head. And be like, yeah, we're, we're chosen by God. We're kind of a big deal. Right. And he's like saying, no, 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 no. Like, it's good to be chosen, but not to be selfish. And this God has a passion for the nations. And even here at the Christmas narrative, we can see that passion come out as these non-Jewish, non-Bible guys come and stream and sacrifice to lay themselves before King Jesus. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. He's the one that orchestrated all this. So yes, salvation belongs to the Jewish world first, but it will never be contained to just the Jewish world. It will go global. And here we sit, unless there's Jewish people here, that this has come to pass. Gentiles have come to King Jesus. And so tucked away in a well-known, but maybe not well-understood Christmas narrative, we see this grand missional purpose of God. Even in the unyet developed life of, of, of Jesus, God is displaying his heart, his global heart. The nations will stream to King Jesus. And God has a plan to save all who are willing to come from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that's who we are as a church. That's who we'll always be as a church. But let's, let's bring it a little closer to home, okay? Let me just ask you this. Can we see ourselves in Herod? Like those who have been, even this morning, exposed to God's word, like Herod was. And those that have this knowledge, have this massive gift of God's word, sometimes that doesn't bring us to worship. Sometimes that doesn't bring us to treasuring and trusting. Sometimes it makes us feel like God is a threat. Is God a threat? Is Jesus' kingship that we see at Christmas time? Is that a joy or is it a threat? And I think this contrast between Herod and the wise men is very intentional. It's worthy of reflection. Like God will receive glory, worship, sacrifice, honor from all kingdoms of the world. That's clear. When we get to the end of the story, book of Revelation, we see that all will bow their knee. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship the lamb slain. And we get that first snippet 
here, just a hint of it here in, in Matthew chapter 2. But some of us would rather rule our own kingdom, like Herod. The kingdom of selfishness, the kingdom of insecurity and pride, and this faux illusion of control. And even people who have the Bible and should know better, even those kind of people sometimes hate God. And maybe hate's just too strong a word. Maybe we're just kind of like nervous about God. Maybe we're like just kind of resistant to God. Maybe we just are kind of grasping for straws and just maintaining like, God, how about just about 10% of control? You can have 90, but just give me 10. So where are you? Where are we this morning? Like if, if Herod and the wise men are a spectrum, like where do we fall? Are there shadows of Herod like Insecurity? Are there shadows of feeling a threat? Or do you see him as beautiful? Like willing to travel high and far, sacrifice to have him? Willing to prostrate yourself and worship him because the beauty of God demands not just a verbal response, not just demands a mental response, but maybe a physical response too? Where are we at? Where are we at this morning? And here's the good news. If you honestly search your heart this morning and and find it lacking, here's the good news. Man, Herod could have repented too. He could have, he didn't have the same information about the gospel and how it works out because that hadn't happened yet, but he did have God's word. He did have God's promises. He could have chosen to have a soft heart towards those promises. And he could have repented for his murderous desires and, and Jesus' blood and resurrection would have covered him. And it could cover us too. If you feel yourself leaning towards Herod-like response. Now that wasn't the case for Herod, but it could be for us, right? You can forsake the way of Herod, follow the way of the wise men, And understand true wisdom. What what is the book of Proverbs? We just went through it all last summer. True wisdom is the kind of worshiping, reverencing, prostrating yourself on the ground type of worship that is the fear of the Lord. That's true wisdom. So in this sense, the wise men truly are wise. Because wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, trusting God's word and what it says. And and man, just hear this. Jesus' rule and reign Man, we can be tempted to think that it's out to get us as a threat, but it's not. What did Jesus say? He said, I've come so you can have life and life to the full. That's why he said he came. I mean, he came, started as a baby and and fleshed all through the God-man as an adult. He said, I'm coming. I came at Christmas so you can have life and life to the full. He's not a threat. But we have to define life as he defines it. Because if we don't, then he does become a threat. If I define life as me and myself and I and just ruling a kingdom of selfishness, he says, you got to redefine life. That's not life. Life is me as king. Me as being worshipped. Me as being adored and sung to and served because there is where you find what you were created for. You weren't created for selfishness. You were created for what the wise men display here, worship. That's where you find yourself. And right there is the battle of faith, is it not? Does God know what he's talking about? 
Herod said, yeah, he does, but I hate it. And the wise man said, I, I just got a little bit of what God's talking about, but I'm believing it. And it led to worship. So this is what Christmas is all about. Where are you at? Ask yourself. The way of Herod, the way of the wise. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to recognize the beauty of your word that you've given as a gift and um, respond to it with joy. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, if there's any here that um, have a heavy conscience right now because they view you as a threat or have to varying degrees, Lord, would you comfort them? Um, and may, may, may the promise that you died for sinners with impure motives, um, would that comfort them this morning? And that you, you, you were risen from the dead so that we can trust you and know that you are alive and your words are true and that you can live in us and give us a new nature. Lord, may that message truly bring great joy and great hope this Christmas time. Lord, I pray for transparency and conversation. Lord, if, if there's folks here that are struggling, pray that they would not hide that struggle, but bring it into the light where, where you, we know that you call us to bear one another's burdens. So may that be so. May we bring them to you. May we bring them to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.